Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. I've often heard uh, you say that our arousal template doesn't change, but what about neuroplasticity? As my porn addiction escalated, I had to escalate to content that I previously found repulsive, or at least not in alignment with my previous sexual tastes. The neurons that fire together wire together. Is that not the case that since I wired my brain to find taboo things appealing, I could potentially rewire them again to my original tastes? Thank you. Thoughts? Yeah, I'm writing. Uh, I want to make sure I get this question right. So, okay. first of all, how things fire together and wire together, just that part depends on how old you are. If I'm learning things at three, four, five, and six, they're going to be burned in much more deeply than something I learn in college. Because the most basic lessons we learn in life are about connection, relationship, touching, intimacy, getting our needs met, the interchange between us and another person. And so, those are actually the most important things to get wired and fired is how we learn early in life to negotiate relationships, intimacy. And in fact, I would suggest that most of the men or most of the sex addicts here have problems going back to things they learned early in life about relationships and connection. However, and I'm going to upset you now and I apologize, but this is the truth because I had to write a whole article about this. If you're turned on by something online, you're turned on by it. If you're not turned on by something online, you're not. Let me be more specific. You may be into vanilla porn, and that's what you're watching. And then all of a sudden, you're into three. And then you're looking at all kinds of different things. You're following a track of your arousal. You're not following a track of things that you wouldn't be interested in. Now, you may not be aware that you put sex and violence together, ever. It may have never occurred to you. But you found it online. And you found it interesting. And all of a sudden, you're looking at S&M videos that you never thought you would look at. Does that mean that? Looking at porn has changed your arousal template. No, it has not. What it means is that porn brought to you things already existing in your arousal template that you didn't even know were there, but now you've seen them, and now you know they turn them on, and now you're interested. And I want to give an example. You may or may not know this, but I am a homosexual. I am interested in men. I am married to a man. When I looked at porn, it was male porn. Maybe it was multiple men, maybe, but it was men. You can show me boobs all day long. You can show me boobs in porn, boobs in life, boobs on the beach. All I'm going to think about is bikinis. I'm not going to think what color, what shape. I'm not going to think, oh, those boobs are really hot and I want to have sex with them because I'm not attracted to boobs. 
Sorry, ladies. And so if you're not attracted to the things you're looking at, they're not going to turn you on. Many people want to blame the porn because they found something that is not in their value system that they're turned on by. When you put the porn away, it's very likely that you will return to a much less intense level of things you want to look at and things you want to engage in. But once you learn about it in the porn, it's not going away. Once you know that you are interested in something and it does have some innate resonance in terms of making you aroused, that isn't going to go away. Go away. You'll always know that there's a party that's into this or a party that's into that that you didn't know about before it was exposed to you. Folks, we do have an unconscious and a subconscious. And those parts of our mind hold on to things that we're not ready to handle. We don't really ever need to look at. I mean, there are all kinds of parts of ourselves we don't know about. However, when they're shoved in our face and we have to look at them, we might wake up and say, oh, wow, I never realized it, but that turns me on. And I wanna, I've spent extra time with this because there's a line of thinking in the porn world that has to do with conditioning. And this guy named Gary Wilson and his book, uh, Your Brain on Porn, this idea that if you look at something enough, you're going to get hooked on it and you're not going to get rid of it until you stop looking at the porn and then you're not going to be hooked on it anymore. And it's just not true. That isn't true. That is a, an incorrect statement. What is true is you look at porn and when you find new things, if it turns you on, it's part of your arousal template and it will remain with you. And maybe if you've never seen it, it wouldn't become something that turns you on or you want to pursue. But now that you have, you've learned that it was part of you all along. Yeah, so you can look at a lot of stuff. And if you find it arousing, it doesn't mean you have to go do it in the world. But it does mean in some part of you, you got turned on by that, even though it doesn't go align with your values and beliefs. And I'll say one more thing about this. And this is a tough one to say. So ladies, if you're going to beat me up about this, write Tammy at SeekingIntegrity.com and she'll tell me. <laughs> But there are women who have rape fantasies. There are women of all kinds of rape fantasies in with the, at the hotel, at work, you know, all kinds of, but they're fantasies. Women, most women do not, almost all women do not want to be raped, but many women have rape fantasies and they don't walk around the world saying, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I want some guy to rape me. They say, oh, I have this fantasy about blah, 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 and I use it when I masturbate, but I would never want to be raped. Maybe in bed with someone, they might want to play with being held down, or but they're in a mutually engaged relationship. They're not really being raped. They're playing. So there's a difference between sexual play and sexual acting out. And you may be able to and want to play with some things you found online. Some things may be things you want to just let dissipate. Um, and if you stay away from them online, they will eventually dissipate, but they won't go away. Thank you. That was a complex question and a great answer. It's okay. a book. It is. Add it to your list. Is it possible for an addict to start their recovery process and never relapse again? Relapse. As a partner, I don't think I can handle my essay relapsing. So, um, Cammie pointed that word out, relapse, I think, because she wanted me to, to help you guys understand the difference between a slip and a relapse. So, a slip is an unintended return to behavior that I wanted to put behind me, and I didn't really expect it. It was like... Um, I had a fight with my spouse. They went out of town. I decided to skip that meeting. And before I knew it, I was into something that was a problem. That's a slip. And what makes it a slip is as soon as it's over, I call my sponsor. I call my therapist. I call my friends. I talk about it. I work through it. And then when my spouse comes home, I tell my spouse because I have no secrets and I don't want to have any secrets. And I know that if I keep this a secret, it's very likely I'll go back and do it again because I got away with it. So. We do have slips. 
I might look at porn again. I might hire a sex worker again. I might call that a fair partner. I cannot promise any of you spouses that that won't happen. And I don't think if you really are a little bit, if you've had some time with working with us around this, you probably will come to agree that what's most important for the relationship is that I'm completely and fully honest with you. It's also the most important thing for my recovery because a relapse is when I go back to old behavior and I don't tell anybody and I keep it a secret and I don't tell my spouse. And let me tell you, as a spouse, I guarantee while you would never want your male partner to return to this behavior, if he did, I'm absolutely certain you'd want to know about it. And I tell the guys and ladies, when you have a slip and you let your partner know, they will say, I could never live with this. I never, if this happens again, I'm leaving all that. Because you, you, that's how you feel. It's not necessarily what you want to do. When push comes to shove, I've seen many partners say, God, I can't believe she did that again, and I hate her for doing it, and I'm so angry, but, but there's something different here. She actually told me about it, and I'm not in the dark, and I know where she's at, and I know where I'm at, and, and even though it isn't going to be a good week, it's still a step in the right direction. Perfection is not a step in the right direction. There's a lot in the 12-step programs about anti-perfectionism. In fact, I would say it's perfectionism that got some of us here. So I cannot promise you that someone won't have a slip. I can't promise you that they will. I think it's more likely that they will than they won't. What matters to me is that they tell you about it. That is a much greater sign of recovery to me than if they go jack off somewhere or call somebody. That's second to are they willing to be honest and grow. So yes, it probably will happen and hopefully it'll be a slip and not a relapse. And I want to, I want to say, you know, as a partner, I don't think I can handle it. I think you are far more resilient than you think you are. And if you have support around you, you can understand that it's a speed bump, but it doesn't have to be falling off the cliff. So I think what Dr. Rob said, yeah, it's going to be a bad week, but this time this person was honest with me, you know, and I want to affirm that even though I don't like what happened, you know, like you have to think about what the consequences of, of that would be for you. If it really is all or nothing, then the person's probably not going to ever tell you, you know, and that, that right. ends up for dishonesty and more likely, in my opinion, to be a relapse. So, And let me just say one more thing to all the spouses about that, because Tammy, that's really important. Look, if you, I understand that people do things, our lovers, our loved ones do things, you just say, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going to leave or I've got to leave. It's fine to say that to your friend, to your therapist, to your mother, you know, but if you want to leave and you tell your partner you're going to leave and then like if you say, if you have, if you masturbate to porn again, or if you call that prostitute again, I'm leaving. And then they do, you better leave. I mean it. Because you've lost all credibility with that person. They're going to go do whatever the heck they want as an addict because they know that you're all words. So I would be careful. Rather than saying, if you do this again, I will leave you, which as Tammy said, will pretty much guarantee you'll never know what's going on. You can say something like, I expect that if this happens again, I will know within 24 hours after you've talked to other people and let them know and kind of work through it a little bit. And if I don't hear it about it in 24 hours, that might be a reason why I don't think I can stay. Not the slip, the lying, the secrecy. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. 
That's SeekingIntegrity.com or call us at 747-234-4325. Next question. What would you suggest gay male couples who want to have a successful open relationship from the beginning? What kind of principles would make an open relationship successful? So we're not talking about sex addiction now. We're just talking about open relationships? Apparently, because, yeah. Okay. What makes open relationships work is two things, having rules and sticking by them. That's really what it's all about. Um, In other words, and I know that some of you who are dealing with addiction and never want to have an open relationship, I know this will be the conversation you want to have when I'm answering the question for this person. It may be that you want to have sex outside your relationship, but you don't want to have any kind of emotional relationship. You might have an agreement with your spouse that, especially as gay men, either one of us might be able to go out and have casual sex occasionally, and you'd have to define what occasionally is as a couple. But if you see the person a second time, or if you call them, or if you engage them, I want to know about it because that's not okay. So the boundary might be casual sex is okay, but seeing them a second time, getting to know them, calling them, becoming friends or lovers is not. Some couples say, I want to know if you did that. I want to know if you went out Friday when I was uh, at someone's house and you had sex with someone else. Other people will say, I don't want to know. I just want to know if I need to watch out for something. Like if you got a disease, you know, rules about what, you know, wear a condom, do this and that. So what makes these things work I think are a couple of things. One is the honest, one is the boundaries. This is how we do it. This is how we don't. And I don't say to myself, well, I'll just do this one time and they won't know I follow the rules. And second of all, I think you have to be a couple that is very secure in your love for each other. Um, I've worked with couples, especially gay couples who will say, well, our relationship isn't really working. So let's just go have sex with a whole bunch of other people and make it open. And that's pretty much a way out of the relationship. I think you can have an open relationship from the get go, or you can close it. Or you can open it at any point. But all the way along, there needs to be a lot of communication, a lot of discussion, a lot of openness. If I had boundaries, I'd write them down. I'd ask my partner to write them down. We might need to meet once or twice a month to say, how are you doing with the boundary thing? Anything I need to know about? You might want to go to a a sex therapist and sit down and make those boundaries so that you can be held to making them productive. Sex addicts don't really, for the most part, get to have open relationships. A few rare cases, but mostly not. But gay men who are living their lives and enjoying each other and or anybody who wants to have an open relationship. I have no judgments about that. Like I have no judgments about people who drink. I just have judgments about alcoholism. I have judgments about cheating, but I don't have judgments about things that people mutually agree to and it's not harmful to them. And I was thinking, and this is way not in my area, but I was thinking it would need to be that the, it really is a mutual if somebody's feeling coerced into that boundary, you know, I mean, cause I, I've heard about it more from the sex addiction side of it, where a partner felt coerced and like, I needed to do this in order to make this person happy and try to, to do that. So if two people really are coming into this by a mutual agreement with good boundaries, you know, that would be completely different to me than somebody being feeling like I've got to do this or I've got to let them do this or whatever. Okay. Next question. What is your opinion on revealing addictions to close family members? My sex and porn addicted partner has essentially revealed to everyone important other than their parents and wants to do that step, but it's incredibly ashamed to do so. I am nervous of them keeping things hidden out of shame if it is reminiscent of what they were doing to me that broke my trust in the first place. Well, I'm not sure if this is the right answer, but I think there's a difference between secrets and boundaries. My wife or husband or spouse might be a sex addict, 
And I would never go to my mother because I think, well, I'm going to have to, every Thanksgiving and Christmas for the next whatever it is, Hanukkah, whatever, I'm going to have to see this family and they're going to know what I did. And they're going to look at me like, is it still going? You know, I wouldn't tell someone like that. It, you, I would say we're having problems. We're working on things. What I mean by boundaries versus secrets is we kind of have different circles of people in our lives. Like my most intimate friends and family, I tell everything. I have no secrets. But someone like Tammy, for example, I work with her. We're really good friends. I tell her the general things that are going on in my life, but it's something very intimate or personal. It really doesn't belong with her. She, she's not a family member and she's not close enough to be family, but she is very close to me as a friend. So I tell her a lot of things, but then there might be people I work with that I don't see that often. And, you know, they might just get, so someone very close is going to get all the information. Someone else might get a version of the information, like we're struggling or we're having a hard time, or I'm just had to go to therapy to work on myself. That said, it is really problematic when you spouses go and run around and tell everybody what's going on. I understand that you don't have a lot of people to turn to. I understand when you're being cheated on, who do you turn to? And, and also I understand, well, screw this person. They fucked me over. And so now I'm going to tell everyone they know. I understand that's your anger. But the reality is, is I think it needs to be thought through. If you have to face this person as a couple or individually a year from now, five years from now, are you going to be glad you told them? Or are you just telling them in a moment of anger or in, in a second where you just need someone to say, yeah, they're awful? Because that second on the lips is forever. Well, it's not on the hips, but it's yeah. forever out there. So, and by the way, most of all, please don't tell your children. Um, I can't tell you. I work with adult children of sex addicts. I've, I've worked with sex addicts of young children. And universally, I don't think that children need to understand the details of their parents' sexual lives. I don't think any child really wants to know what mom and dad do in bed with themselves or other people. And it will visit them in their heads forever, and it will influence relationships. I work with this great couple. Tammy, I think you might even have met them. You know them because they brought us um, they brought us little um, ornaments yeah. and as yeah. gifts. Yeah. Um, and this couple... They, the, the gentleman came to our treatment center. He was in seeking integrity for a couple of weeks. And the problem in his marriage was not his healing. It wasn't his wife's healing. They were both ready to really work on each other. They loved each other. They have a long relationship. But the problem was, is that their kids had found out that their mom had been cheated on and that dad had cheated on her a bunch of times. So the kids were like, mom, I don't want you to be with him. I don't want you to. And she wanted to be with him. <laughs> so the feelings that other people can take on related to your situation may not be the ones that you really need to follow. The people who get this information may not be ones you want to run into with this information five years from now. You do need to talk to people, but make sure they're safe. That's why we have therapists and clergy that you can go to, and we will never say anything about what you've said because we're not allowed to. Start there and work your way out. I was thinking that too. I was thinking nieces and nephews all sitting around. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, imagine the whole family at Christmas talking about your sexual behavior. Yeah, or looking idea. at you across did the Did you hear what Uncle Jack did? Yeah. Great. Several years ago, I sought out child porn. I just saw images and no videos, didn't download anything. I haven't gone there since, and my therapist is aware of this. I think I did it out of curiosity and seeking after more intense pornography. I feel terrible about it. I feel a lot of shame and having a hard time forgiving myself for this. How should I approach this? Don't do it again. Haven't you know, done it again. Right. But that's how you approach it. You know, I look, we've all, I think I've done a few illegal things in my life. I think I've done a lot of things that I have regret and sadness about. I wish I hadn't done, but here's the good news. I don't have to do any of them again. 
I learned my lesson. I learned that that makes me feel terrible and I think it hurts other people. So look, we talk a lot about shame and guilt in treatment and out. So in case you haven't read a lot of Brene Brown, who writes a lot about shame, let me just tell you very simply that guilt is a natural feeling that I did something wrong and I don't want to feel that bad, guilty feeling again, so I'm not going to do it again. And you may simply be feeling healthy guilt, which is the pain of knowing you have crossed your values and beliefs and you don't want to do that again. So you're going to back up and not do that anymore. Shame is more like... Something you know, I'm a deeply broken, flawed person, and only terrible, awful people would do these kinds of things. And it's much more about the self. So the next one, I'm really confused at. So I'm going to try to to get this right. Have you ever heard about seal anorexia by a sex addict? It says um, where there's a cycle: two weeks crazy, seal needs two weeks nothing, and then your experience with this. Do, do you understand I think the word that? is sexual. Oh no sexual wonder. Sexual anorexia. Okay. And a cycle every two weeks where the sex... So I can just speak about this in general. Please, I think thank you, because I challenge. So just like there are people who have eating disorders who will go from binge to purge. You know, they'll eat and eat and eat and get really big, and then someone will start throwing up and avoiding food. They can be hyper-eating or hypo-eating. They can get into anorexia. And I see this a lot with addicts where, especially sex addicts, where when we're having wild, crazy sex with all these strangers and doing what no problem easy as pie but being sexual with someone we're close to we care about we're intimate with much harder and so some of us as rapidly sexual as we are in the world in a relationship or when faced with one person we care about we might not be interested in sex at all i'll also say that and i say this a lot that this is a process where we're going to struggle and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to, the road gets narrower and we need to learn new things. So what was okay with you a year ago may not be okay with you now. But I, when I walk into a 12-step meeting, I expect sex addicts to have three years of sobriety, five years of sobriety, stuff like that. But when I run into someone who says, I have 15 years of sobriety, I know what they're going to say. They inevitably say, and I'll say, well, what's that like? 15 years of sobriety, that's really cool. And they'll say, well, I haven't had sex in 15 years. Yeah. So um, basically what I'm saying is I see, I see people who struggle with sexual issues in terms of having too much, and they don't know how to deal with that, or they're doing their best to deal with it, they're trying to figure it out, and they go to the other side, which is having no sex at all. Or some people who are very easily have sex with strangers or in those kind of intensity-based situations, but find themselves avoiding sex with intimate partners. This is all part of the work. This is all to be expected and not a surprise. But I, I also was saying that I do not think that stopping being sexual is an answer to healing. And let me give one example of that. I work with a guy who said, oh, I have 90 days. I haven't had sex with anyone who's a single guy. I haven't had sex with anyone in 90 days, and I'm really proud. I'm doing really great. And it was six months. Great. And what he learned was how to be sober and build friendships and get involved in his program and be in therapy. But after that six months was over, he wanted to start dating. He didn't know anything about dating. So simply not being sexual and avoiding the issue entirely doesn't help with the healthy part. This is someone, you know, this is why I don't like Sexaholics Anonymous, S-A, because they say you have to be in a committed relationship in order to in order to join their program. And I think, well, half of us, how would we ever get in a committed relationship unless we learn how to hold hands and date and kiss and maybe make love with people and get our way into relationship? So I think that avoiding sex is not the way around or through. It's just kind of another way of being stuck. 
So in AA, it seems like people generally have more long-term sobriety than S scholarships and there are more sponsors available. Do you think this is accurate and why would it be so? Yes, it is accurate because a lot, I think it's easier to recover from drugs and alcohol. I think it's easier to recover from substances because it's a yes or no thing. It's like, I can live the rest of my life and never drink. I'll be happy. I can live the rest of my life and not gamble and I'll be happy, but no sex. Mm Mm-mm. Food, uh uh-uh. So when it comes to naturally occurring functions like food and sex that have run off the rails, um, the answer to it is not, uh, again, not to stop or, I'm sorry, now I lost the question. There's more sponsors and more long-term sobriety. So AA will get people of 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, because they just never drink again. But that doesn't mean, no offense to people in AA, that they work on intimacy problems, they may still have problems with food, they may, they're not necessarily looking at their whole self. I think one of the things about our recovery is that it's so intimate, it's so personal, it's so shameful, it's so painful when we get in trouble that I think it is a deeper level of work. And I, by the way, I've heard of many alcoholic and drug addicts who are in our world say, you know, I stopped drinking and using and then I realized what the real problem was. It was sex, love and intimacy. And now I realize I had that problem long before I ever started drinking. So for a lot of folks, it's just the under, it is the underlying, the underlying issue. And I think, well, but I think there's a lot of people in AA that are overeating, are, you know, continue, and they're, they're, like you said, they're acting out sexually, they're doing something else, you know, so, so until we heal the underlying issues, you know, we're going to just keep bouncing around things, but, but chemicals are the one you don't ever have to do that again. My, my eating disorder was has been more of a challenge lifelong than you know the the drinking was a challenge at first but now i you know no big deal but i just discovered a few months ago that my husband of 28 years has been using porn for as long as he can remember and masturbating habitually for the past eight years he has paid legal prostitutes for sex we are both traumatized and feel as if this pain will never end he doesn't know where his head was or why he did these things and he can remember very little he had some pretty close emotional relationships with those ladies why did he do what he did and where do we go from here that's a very great question because it's a, an open door. It's like, what do you do? First of all, let me say, I've worked in the addictions and with people with these kinds of issues for over 25 years. And so I have enough experience to know that, that I would never tell anybody, well, go do this because I've never met your husband. And so people who sexually act out can have all kinds of issues. They can be sexually acting out related to uh, an emotional health problem like uh, bipolar disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. Some people have a lot of trauma in their background. They're really acting out some form of trauma, but they're not addicted. Other people truly have an addiction and that's driving everything and you can't even see what's underneath until that stops. So I really think the best do is the best thing to do is to not sit around the house with each other saying, what do you think? In other words, don't sit around playing therapist with each other. Go find a professional who really knows what they're talking about, who works with these issues, and sit down and say, this is our story. And what do you recommend we do? I mean, quite honestly, you know, if you've been lied to for that many years and there are that many secrets and there's that much acting out, this is he's probably a really good patient, a good person for a treatment program because it's all there's so much of it. But I wouldn't recommend anyone to go to treatment until I really understood why they were going to treatment. And I don't know what's going on underneath medical, psychiatric. So the first thing I would go do is see a professional. And by the way, Tammy has worked in this field almost as long as I have. And she 
her job is to, over the years, gathering resources. And she knows people all over the world that we don't get kickbacks. But if you say, I'm in Atlanta, or I'm in Ohio, or I'm in England, we know the therapists who do this work. I probably couldn't help you find a therapist who works with depression, but I can sure help you find a therapist who works with addiction and sexual issues and, all, and lying and all that. So write us a note. This is Tammy at Seeking Integrity. I'm Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. We always answer questions. So first of all, let me say two more things. I'm really sorry to you as a spouse that you've been lied to for so long. And the only thing I can encourage you to do is, um, and this may be a little hard, is be a little less focused on his pain and his struggle and a little more focused on yours. Because whatever's wrong with your husband, the reality is he's been lying and cheating for a long time. And whether it's medical, psychiatry, you know, if he's able to go to work and have a life, then he knew what he was doing. And, and, when he, and if he didn't tell you, he knew what he was doing when he didn't tell you. If I had a partner who was reasonably functional and was cheating to me and lying about it for a long time, I don't think my first choice would be thinking about how my compassion for them. I think my first thing would be I'm freaking furious that they went out, that they didn't tell me this. So I want to fully encourage you to get in touch with your anger because that's how I think might be empowering for you to feel. And then if you both go see somebody who really understands these issues and, and there's an assessment, then you can really get a, a head up, a, a foot up on what to do next. Tammy, do you have thoughts about that? I do because 28 years I'm going the old lady drop in or the old lady posse drop in group is a Tuesday mornings at 8:30 a.m. Pacific time and I subbed in a few weeks ago on that group and it's an amazing group of women who are there to support each other highly encourage you to to drop into that group it's I, free Yes, it's free. All of the drop-in groups, they're a different format than this. It's you guys can see each other, but it isn't recorded. So there's a lot of different drop-in groups, you know, male partners, female sex and love addicts, female porn addicts, four different ones for men throughout the week, betrayed partner groups on Sunday nights and Wednesday afternoons. So there's a lot of resources that are specifically to for that identified group. So I would encourage you to do that. The other thing I was thinking about was the, he doesn't remember this. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, Dr. Rob, about where they just don't have any um, recollection or you know, it's so compartmentalized. Can you talk about that? Well, there's two different, again, I don't know this gentleman. So, you know, it could be that he has trauma and he completely dissociates. It's like he's a different person and he fully doesn't remember. That would be a different issue than addiction. But with the people that I work with, it's more that there's a, um, an emotional state that they go into when they're seeking this out. And there's a lot of adrenaline and endorphins. And they're really so hyper-focused on the sex that everything kind of goes away. And they're not, they kind of feel like they're in a different place because, they're not thinking about you, they're not thinking about anything else but going and doing that. And being in that state, it can be almost like a rush, like it all happened at once. Or, and if you do something like that often enough, it kind of all runs together. So like when we work with people to do a disclosure, which is when we sit down with a spouse and we let them know what's been going on, some of your spouses will say, how come I don't get a disclosure the first week you start treatment? I want him to tell me everything that he's done. Well, the truth is, if you've been acting out, or look, if I ate chocolate over 25 years and I was an excessive chocolate eater, I don't think I could tell you which chocolate, when, how much, but I'd have to sit down and really look at each year and where I was. So that's what we do with the clients. We sit down and say, well, 28 years of behavior, we're going to go year by year, 
look at where you were in your life, what you were doing. It can take six weeks or a couple of months for that person to say, oh, right, I did that, was on vacation. Oh, I forgot. When my wife was out of town, it takes a while to put it all together. So he's right in saying, unfortunately for you, there's probably so much and so many times that I can't just tell you. That's part of the therapy process, sitting down and coming to terms. He may not be able to tell you, I looked at porn on Thursday nights and Friday nights five years ago. But he may be able to say, you know, it's probably been three or four times a week, a couple of hours a week for this amount of time. You know, we could get to that. I would not take this on alone as a couple. And I certainly wouldn't take this on with an average therapist. I have great respect for my profession, but you don't go to a general practitioner if you have cancer. And this is a really severe relationship issue that requires a certain kind of thinking and therapy that we are trained to do. Um, because we work with unfaithful couples and addiction. And we have a viewpoint of it that helps people move in the right direction. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.